Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Welcome to another Manna for Breakfast. It is a sunny day today here. Might be a hot one. But I don't think we're dealing with the temperatures you guys are. It's a, probably a, a, a nice, comfortable 82 out there or something. I need, to, I need to remember, look at the weather before we get started. I have a new background um, today. Couldn't get the other one working for some reason this morning. So um, if it's not overly green for you, it's kind of a um, mythical paradise. I think it's a combination of the other waterfall with uh, some artists... Um, addition to it and um anyway didn't quite get the background quite right this morning uh was rushing to get things going here today but be that as it may it's nice to have you guys with us we have a ton of reading to do today if you look at what we got we obadiah psalms kings and corinthians there's a whole bunch there so we're going to forego our normal this day in history and some of the dad jokes, and just we'll just go right into it. Well, we are going to jump into Obadiah this morning. One first chapter, Obadiah was a prophet um, prophesying against the the really the the doom of Edom. Remember, Edom comes the the Edomites were from Esau, and they were warring against the Jews. They became pretty violent opposers of the Jewish state and was rejoicing when Babylon was coming in to destroy uh, the Jewish state or their cousins, so to speak. And so this prophecy comes against them. They were in the the other side of um, the Jordan, kind of, and they were over by, if you guys were know Petra, this was over in the area of Edom. So this is the prophecy to the Edomites now. So we're going to be looking at that. So we'll go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. And we do pray as we go into this, you would guide us into this new book and all these books and give us kind of these um, beautiful, beautiful insights, God, as only your Holy Spirit can do for us. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Obadiah, chapter 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, Though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would they not only still say they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you, will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread 
will set an ambush for you. There's no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter because of violence to your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity. In the day of their disaster, do not loot their wealth. In the day of their disaster, do not stand at the fork of the road and cut down their fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drank of my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor in the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken, and those of the Negev will possess the mountains of Esau. And those of the Shephla, the, uh, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of their host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in the Shephard, will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So, historically, what happened was when Babylon came to conquer Jerusalem and take them away, I think it was the second deportation, I remember which, the Edomites actually did stand in the roads um, and tried to capture the fugitives that were fleeing the city that were trying to get away, and they would hold them and give them over to the Babylonians, rejoicing because they didn't like them, and they thought, hey, we'll get rid of them, and we can go ransack the city, and we can take what we want. And there was this hatred that had been ever established since Jacob, Jacob and Esau were at odds with one another, and the Edomites were ha- holding a grudge. And so they were hiding up in the cliffs. They, we, we see they were the ones who originally inhabited the area of Petra. I've been to Petra with Rene. It is up in the high places. It's up in, the, in these valleys. And they had their dwellings up in the clefts of the rocks. They felt very secure up there. And they would come down and try and do raids upon Israel. And they were at battle, war with them. And, and Obadiah is saying, hey, guys, don't think, don't be rejoicing over Israel's destruction. Don't be thinking you won over them because they got pulled over. We got pulled off into um, exile, and they got pulled over in, into Babylon. Uh, God will deal with you because you have a, a blood relationship with them, and you're gloating over, over their defeat, the victory of the Babylonians. And so, 
this was very serious to God. And he said, uh, anyone who comes against my anointed, the nation that he had set up to be an example. Again, God didn't choose Israel because they were better, because they were superior race or anything. He chose them almost the opposite because they were the, they were the, the, I guess the, the ugly, the ugly duckling, the, the odd child that nobody really wanted in that kind of sense. He, t- he chose, like he chooses us, he takes what is common, uh, not many, not many wise, not many noble, n- you know, not many super intelligent, and he chooses to bless them and make them imagers of him to show the world that he's a loving God and he wanted to re- build this relationship with them so that they could show the world what he was like and model to the world what a relationship with God could be like and because these people wanted to try and destroy that they were really working on behalf of the enemy of darkness and so he says that is going to be judged and you cannot come against the work that I'm trying to set up and do and get away with it. So he sends his prophet Obadiah there to prophesy against them. And they thought they were secure. They had this power. They were in the, what's interesting, they were in the East Arabia. And, uh, and they were coming against the Jewish state, so to speak. And so this is still true today. We still see the same, the same issue of the descendants of... Edom, in a sense, now it says Edom was really destroyed uh, after 70 AD by the Babylonians, by the way. The same people that tried to help ended up destroying them and wiping them out. And then after the Romans came in and destroyed, leveled Jerusalem in 70 AD, they pretty much ceased to exist. But the, the remnants, the, the Arabs today, still in the east of the Jordan, still doing the same thing, still trying to come against Israel, to a large degree, thank God Jordan has a good relationship, so there, it kind of is within Jordan, Petra area, but we have all of those still farther south and east that still would love to destroy Israel, and the prophecy is, I think, applicable still. Uh, don't gloat over your victory. Don't think that you've, well, especially World War II when Israel was, you know, put in concentration camps and stuff. Um, God is not done with Israel. God was not done with Israel then with Obadiah when they were taken away in captivity. They came back from captivity, rebuilt the temple, and reestablished themselves. Um, And then, of course, Jesus came, and we have the kingdom established through the Jewish nation. So God has never been finished with Israel, and God has been using them even to today because our Messiah came through Israel to show us again what a relationship with God was to be, that he came through the man Jesus as a Jew so we could form a relationship with him and model that to the world. So still as a plan for Israel, they have lost that vision. They've kind of walked away, forgot their Messiah, but God's going to bring that, Going <laughs> to we're going to see that happen. All the prophecies uh, are going to be fulfilled by the other minor prophets, Joel and the others about they're going to cry and weep for their their Messiah and realize who they have pierced. And so God's going to continue to use them. And the nations of the world that have set themselves against Israel and the God of Israel and our Savior are going to be judged. There you go. Psalm 82 and 83. God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked Selah? 
Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like a man and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. Psalm 83. God implored to confound his enemies. A song of Asaph. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. O God, do not be silent. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves and make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel might be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also joined with them, and they have become a help to the, to the children of Lot, Selah. Deal with them as with Midian, as with the sisters of Jabin and the torrent of Kishon, those who destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and the princes like Zeba and Zalumna, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh, my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chap before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like the flame that sets the mountain on fire. Who pursue them as your tempest and terrify them with your storm? Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over the earth. Um, we have some really interesting things going on there. Prophecies, again, you see Moab thrown in there. If this is written by Solomon, this would be previous um, to their deportation. It's gonna, And he's still claiming that the prophecy is going to come. Now, I need to go back to Psalm 82 and look and see if I actually copied the whole thing um, or not, because I wanted to get to, I wanted to get to something there um, in Psalm 82, and I wasn't seeing what I was looking for at the time. So let me get there on my phone because I can't back up on my little silly teleprompter. So let me get over here. All right, there we go. It is seven and eight. Okay. Um, This is really interesting. Verse 7 and 8. Well, let me go back. God says, um, verse 6, I said, I said you are gods, for all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise and judge the earth, for it is you who will possess all the nations. Now, the the reference really that's going on right here is God is speaking to the, the fallen uh, Elohim, the fallen angels we call them, 
but their the actual Hebrew name would be the Elohim. They had rebelled against God, and they they wanted to be the gods over men, and God has cast them out. And God, what God says, nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of their princes. Essentially, you are going to be, you are going to suffer. You will not be immortal any longer. And he's allowing them, this is a phenomenal book um, that by Michael Heiser that I commend to you called The Unseen Realm. And he gets into this in depth. In fact, these are the verses that got him to write the book because he's a theologian, knows the five ancient languages or something like that. He works for Logos um, Bible Software. And this book has been foundational. It's been, uh, it's been all over the Christian community for a few years now and has really made an impact. What he says here in verse 8 is, is profound. He says, Arise, O God, um, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. He is, I want to see if I have that in the, in the new, um, need to read it in the new English version. And that's the ESV. Let me see if I have it in the ESV. And uh, hopefully we have it there. There we go. And let's see if I open it up to the same place. Of course it doesn't give me the same place. But we'll get into it again. Psalm 82. There we go, 7 and 8. Okay, it's it's basically the same thing. But what he... Um, Deuteron- I'm thinking of De- Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 is where he gets... He gets a lot more into this, but again, Deuteronomy thirty-two, eight, and nine is related to this, to this psalm, where he's judging the angels and telling them they will be themselves judged, and they will um, be like men, and they would fall under his judgment for what they had done in rebelling against him. So, uh, and this relates to some uh, the Deuteronomy thirty-two, eight, and nine, where he he says he's going to allow them to actually rule over the nations, give the nations what they had wanted since the time of the of Babel and the rebellion and wanting to follow after Nimrod, who was a connected to these Elohim and these descendants and these Nephilim. And so he says, I'm going to allow you guys to get to have what you want. I'm going to give you them as your gods and they can rule over you and let's see how it goes for you. And but yet they're going to be judged and that judgment is still being held. It's reserved for the end of the age. And it's a very, very interesting study. And I do encourage you to get the book, The Unseen Realm, by Michael Heiser. And it, it will help you a lot in understanding your Bible. Second Kings 1 now. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angels of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub? The God of Ekron. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from your bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed 
When the messengers returned to him and said to them, Why have you returned? They said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, it is, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up. You shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him, the captain of fifty of his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of a hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah replied to the captain of fifty, I, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So he again sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So he again sent the captain of the third fifty with the fifty. And the third captain of the fifty went up and he came and he bowed down on his knees before Elijah. And he begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these fifty of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifty, but now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire? of his word. Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. Verse 17, so Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Joram became king in his place in the second year of Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And we looked at that yesterday. Uh, how interesting that the these uh, men that are sent to him are consumed by fire from heaven. Now, that just, we disconnect that from normally, most of us, from what this king was doing. He was crying out to Baal Zebub, which was Baal really in their language just means Lord. So you have Lord Zebub, and you have Baal Peor, which we see happens when Balaam is called by Balak. You have these different names. Later, those all become incorporated just to the kind of a general concept of the Canaanite god, the gods in general, in one sense. And they just call them Baal or Baal, as we say in English. And uh, But Zebub, this was, this was the... the demonic i i'm going to admit my my spaciness my brain here it's been a long time since i've studied baal's above but remember jesus was uh, he, some of his miracles with things he was doing were, were attributed to baal's above this was the kind of the the epitome of evil 
uh, and in the Jewish mindset, and it was related to very dark acts. Now, I'm going to guess, and maybe if I get a chance, I'll look at this today, that there might be a connection between Baal Zebub and fire, or heaven, coming things coming down out of heaven, because God likes to make statements. He's always fighting on two planes. He's flying on the he's a fighting on the physical and the spiritual, and so he's fighting against this king on the physical, and he's coming against him, saying, "You are you are not acting according to my standards for my kings. What they are supposed to do." But he's also at the same time fighting the king behind him, with Baal's above. He's coming directly against him. So uh, I think it's it's telling. It's important that we see that these these guys that are consumed by fire, they are representatives on the physical plane of the attack that's coming against Yahweh from Baal Zebub. And they're being consumed. The same thing that happens we see with the plagues. The same things we have we see with just about all of the the acts, Mount Carmel with, with him calling down fire from heaven between all the prophets of Baal again. Remember they had this uh, and, and also Ashtoreth. I know common bell was the storm god, so he had connection to the heavens and bringing down rain. So it was very much related to what was above in the heavens. So I think I'm on safe ground by saying that when Elijah is calling down fire from heaven, he is taking authority over that realm, which was supposed to be Baal-zebub. And so this brings a lot of fear into the king and to all those who witness it. Obviously, people witness this because this other guard, this other captain of the 50 comes up and he says, hey, I know you destroyed these guys by fire, or God did, and I don't want to be destroyed by fire. So people saw this, and maybe there was still some uh, ashy heaps laying around as he came up there and noticed that the whole ground was toasted, and that's how he figured it out pretty quick. I don't know. But uh, it's it's pretty interesting to see what happens here. These miracles always have a deeper rooted reason to them if you look in, far enough into it. First Corinthians 11, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesies disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does it, not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but the woman from man. For indeed, Man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither 
is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. As for the women, the women originates, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. For if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, for we have the churches of God. But in giving in this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I shall not praise you. In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Way too much there for me to break down for you. I'll just say simply, as far as the head coverings go, this is a matter for you to study and make up your own mind. I've had people, women come to church with head coverings, and I'm perfectly fine with that. They read it and they say, you know what, this still applies today. And I have the majority of other people come and say, no, this, this was a cultural issue. It was really severe, especially with the cult prostitutes with their short hair and the Jewish women with their long hair. Uh, did not want to copy anything of the world, and they had and and uh, they they were also following the Jewish culture, and and this there was a lot related there, and there's a lot you can look at. Um, there were several godly men in the in the Bible with with uh, long hair. Long hair is all subjective. How much is how how long is long hair? And and so um, is it sinful if it's if a woman has to wear a head covering? Then that means man cannot have long hair. And who's going to be the judge of what long hair is? And so man has to keep their their head 
cut. And then you see all the pictures of Jesus, by many people's standards, he's long hair. So this gets really controversial and uh, gets people uh, divided. And these should be one of those things where we have a personal kind of conviction about it. And, um, and, and go with what you feel. It's a good way to study scripture. Dig into it. Find out what it says and find out uh, both sides of the issue. That Now, this we go on, we see one interesting, very th- interesting thing that most people miss, they jump over because they get so caught up with the, the practice and say they, the, the women's hair, one of the reasons Paul says that women should have the, the hair, the long hair, which was, again, completely distinct from the cult prostitutes, was to be to be as a covering before God, but also he says it's related to the angels. <laughs> and you need to just look into that. Why did Paul say that? That they, they needed to be careful of how they presented themselves because it seems to imply that they could become desirous to the angels, which relates back to Genesis 6. Don't have to agree with that, but that is a very valid interpretation that people are looking at that, and that even today there are the fallen ones that have a propensity to be attracted to women. So look at that; it's interesting. So let's. Oh, and then of course we have the communion, beautiful communion, um, given to us by Paul, which is what he gives us was directly from the Lord. Remember, he never sat down at the table with Jesus with the disciples before he went to the cross. He was not there. But he says, that which was given to me, it was given directly by Jesus. Jesus said, look, Paul, this was why I had that last supper. This is why I gave it to the church. This is what it means. It's my body broken. It's the new covenant. It's my blood. And so Jesus is explaining that to Paul after the fact in his risen body. The disciples were there with him before the, the crucifixion. So in both cases, we see it's symbolic. You can't take this and say, Jesus is saying, this is my literal body and my literal blood, because he is saying, this is the, rep- the blood of my covenant. This was to represent the covenant. The blood was shed to represent the covenant, but the, what was in the cup was not his literal blood. The disciples did not drink his literal blood because Jesus was there with them. And so common sense tells you it's representative. So it, the, the cup does not get transformed into literal blood. And then again, I came up to the Episcopal Church, which believed that it was you know, magically transformed into the blood of Christ, but it still tasted like wine. And so you can't say that it's the literal blood of Christ and it looks like wine, tastes like wine. Even in that saying that it is, it's still somehow symbolic. So this is a false teaching from the Catholic Church, from various Protestant churches that I don't particularly like calling it the host because it gives us this idea that it's a literal body. It's representative of the body. I'm, I'm fine with that. And, and, the, and the wine or the, the juice as a representative of what Jesus said. The point was we're supposed to remember what happened. We're not supposed to put the value in the bread and the wine as being somehow meritorious to transform us and make us better. What we're supposed to do is let our faith 
be established and make a statement to the world that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we take this in our bodies as a way of proclaiming that we are his, and he is in us, and we are in him. And we are saying that to the church, we're saying that to the world, that it's reality, and that he has now divided himself, so to speak. By the Holy Spirit, he's divided himself, and that he is now in us. And we take that in to celebrate and to remember. All right, so moving on now to Charles Spurgeon. Seekers, finders. Chronicles 28.9. If thou seek him, he will be bound of thee. We need our God. He is to be had for the seeking. He will not deny himself to any one of us if we personally seek his face. It is not as if thou deserve him or purchase his favor, but merely if thou seek him. Those who already know the Lord must go on seeking his face by prayer, by diligent service, and by holy gratitude. To such he will not refuse his favor and fellowship. Those who have not yet known him to their soul's rest should at once commence seeking and never cease till they find him as their savior, their friend, their father, their God. What strong assurance this promise gives to the seeker. He that seeketh findeth. You, yes you, if you seek your God, shall find him. When you find him, you have found life, pardon, sanctification, preservation, and glory. Will you not seek and seek on since you shall not seek in vain? Dear friend, seek the Lord at once. Here is the place, and now is the time. Bend thy stiff knee, yes, bend that stiff neck, and cry out for God, for the living God. In the name of Jesus, seek cleansing and justification. You shall not be refused. Here is David's testimony to his son Solomon, and it is the writer's personal witness to the reader. Believe it and act on it for Christ's sake. Father, I want to thank you for that beautiful writing and thank you for the the truth that there lies in it, that if we seek you, we will find you. That if we cry out, that you will meet us and you will give us forgiveness and you will give us sanctification, you will give us grace, you will give us your mercy. We thank you, God, that you have made it abundantly clear that you are not a God who's, who refuses those who come before you and demands somehow some kind of um, blind, ritualistic uh, symbolism to, to get you to react to us or to accept us. It is... It is not the perpetual mass. It is not the unending communion or the acts of contrition and um, self-flagellation or um, the long pilgrimages, Father, that gets your attention. It's the heart that is broken and contrite, that is repentant, sorry of sin, but is also deeply seeking to know the God that they love deeply desiring to know what life and truth is. It's an honest heart that believes you died, 
that believes you paid the price for sin and that you rose again. That is the heart. That is the soul where you meet, that you meet and then find and extend all of the grace of the heaven upon us to bring us into your kingdom and to make us one and to make us new creatures in Christ. And so we thank you for that and we bless you for that and we thank you for bringing so many of us that are listening to that point and freeing us, bringing us out of the cave of darkness and bringing us into the glorious light. We thank you and we bless you and we praise you this morning. And we want to pray for our brothers and sisters, our friends that have not yet gotten there and those that are caught up in this ritualistic religious system of really a Baalzebub and those things that are of the darkness that people turn to instead of the living God. Is there not a God in this world that we can turn to? A living God, the God of truth, instead of turning to the gods of this world for help? Father, help our friends that are caught up in this and confused by it. Give them understanding and give them your grace. Touch them and help use us, God, to reach them for your kingdom. And Father, bless those that are looking for healing that need it in their bodies. Pray for Hank's wife. Pray for um, Karen Skoog. Pray for Juan Carlos, uh, again, needing so much for the healing of his, of his brain. I want to pray for um, Raquel at church who's got this nerve damage in her arm, who needs healing in her arm. God, just help her supernaturally. Thank you for her heart coming to church feeling bad. Thank you for those who continue to press through no matter whether they're feeling bad or not. Continue to heal Renee. Thank you. She's feeling so much better today. We pray for Dean and Kim for their continued healing in their bodies and pray, pray for those that are just coming out of surgery and coming out of their treatments, God. Thank you for, for healing their bodies and the things you're doing. We thank you for the evangelism team that will be going out tonight. May you bless them abundantly. And may the fruit that comes from that be lasting fruit. May people be transformed and come into the fellowship, God. And we thank you for growing the fellowship. We do pray to continue to grow our, our church. Continue to bring in the hungry. Continue to bring in the people that are moving here from all over the place, God. Let us be a safe harbor, a place where they can come and feel loved and feel growth and feel they can serve. I pray you give us more opportunities to serve and that you direct your church, God, and guide us into all truth. And thank you, God, for the service last night, for the people that were there, and just the blessed time we had in fellowship. We praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Boy, I'm, I'm long. i got to cut this off and cut the Spanish started because there's so much reading. And, of course, I get excited about some of the stuff that was <laughs> in there today. So thank you for being with us. We will catch up with you again same time tomorrow. If you're interested, if you have Telegram, you just need to go on there and um, type in Manna for Breakfast. You should be able to find it. If you don't, let me know. And we'll certainly, I guess, send out an invitation to you to join. God bless. Bye-bye.